0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So thank you everybody for um, sticking around. I'm looking forward to this next hour. We're going to have a debate in the style of the monk debates, which are put on in Toronto every year, and some of you may have seen some of them. Um, the monk debate, there's a pro and a con side, and we have two people mm. arguing each side. On the uh, And the, the resolution today is, be it resolved that I would not encourage my daughter or son to become a pediatric surgeon. And we don't mean that literally your daughter or son. We mean would you encourage your best trainee? Would you encourage somebody in the younger generation to follow in your footsteps as a pediatric surgeon? We've got Dan Osley and Kathy Burnwhite taking the pro side, and Doug Barnhart and Andrea Hayes-Jordan taking the con side. Okay, we're starting with, with uh, Kathy Burnwhite.
1: I'm near the end of a pretty spectacular career in pediatric surgery, <clears throat> but the Storm clouds of trouble, which were uh, starting over our profession about 15 years ago, are now completely engulfing pediatric surgery to the point where it would be very hard to encourage a youngster coming up in medicine to go into pediatric surgery. I'm going to start the debate with three things the burgeoning number of pediatric surgeons, the inroads other su- pediatric subspecials are making into our line of work, and the training, the stress the length, the uncertainty of matching. In 1987, there were 22 programs. Now there are upwards of 60, such that between 2015 and 2030, a mere 15 years, the pediatric surgery workforce will increase by 45%. And at the same time, the number of index cases is staying the same, and in some entities, actually dropping So my daughter, wanting to go to general surgery and pediatric surgery and finishing, if she's lucky, more on that later, in 2029 will have double the number of pediatric surgeons vying for the same paltry number of TEFs. And it's worse than that. The other pediatric surgeons, Subspecialties are increasing at rates more rampant than ours. In a recent four-year period, the number of pediatric urologists has increased 53%. We've already given up the reconstructive urology, and now they want our orchidopexies, our circumcisions, our hernias, and heaven forbid, our Wilm's tumors. In that same four years, pediatric ENT increased a whopping 73% elbowing in on our bronx and trachs, our brachial clefts, and heaven forbid, our thyroid cancers. Pediatric plastics, pediatric interventional radiology, ortho, they all want to pick off our work. Now, we went into pediatric surgery because it was the last bastion of, of general surgery. I could do a thyroglossal, a thoracoscopic thymectomy, a PSARP, and a couple of appies to round out my day. But with the increased numbers, the dilution of our experience by other subspecialists and clear-cut scientific evidence that volume increases quality, we are now becoming subspecialized. You have the hepatoblastoma doc, you got the colorectal surgeon, you got the esophageal specialist. And while this may actually improve care in each of those entities, will it mean that the Pediatric surgeon will become the appendix hernia centerline line doc. And is that really worth nine years of bone-breaking residency? You got four years of medical school. You got five years of general surgery. You have to step out of general surgery for two years to do research because you can't match in pediatric surgery without a CV the size of Montana. And then you have two years of fellowship. And those applicants will now spend an average of 20 grand. That is more than half their after-tax income for a year to apply. And 50% of them will fail. And then they either have to go a different track or they have to redouble and do some super-specialized pediatric surgery fellowship in critical care or colorectal surgeon surgery, something they will never use in their career unless they spend another $20,000 or $40,000 dollars to go around the match the second and third time. And if they do end up matching, believe it or not, one in five of them will fail their pediatric surgery boards. So we pediatric surgery training program directors the other day were looking at each other saying, oh no, we need to extend the training period another year or two. At the same time when other surgical specialties, cardiothoracic, plastics, vascular, are all helping to curtail their training periods. Now, I know my estimable colleagues are going to tell you a lot of warm and fuzzies about taking care of children. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, And they'll be absolutely right. It is a gift to be able to take care of children. But let's face reality. There are too many of us. Other experts are eating our lunches. And the training period it's so long, it's so stressful. You give up your youth, you give up money. And the emotional and physical stress is 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 tough and I cannot encourage it. And we haven't even talked about malpractice, the workload, the lifestyle and the decreasing economic pressures. Thank you.
2: Thank you. This is great, I just love this, I love it. This is gonna be awesome. So um, I've been practicing pediatric surgery for about 17 years. I was privileged to match during the time when there was 15 programs in the United States and about six in Canada. And I was excited, and I'm still completely excited and privileged to be a pediatric surgeon. And even when you're exhausted, you know, I had a fellow tell me once, we had been up operating all night on this NEC baby, then we had to cannulate an ECMO kit, and it was, you know, the next morning, Saturday morning for rounds, and I was exhausted. And I, she saw that I was exhausted. We had a round on about 40 kids. I said, okay, Laura, let's go. Let's get, let's get this done. And she said, Dr. Hayes-Jordan, this is the best job in the world. <laughs> what is wrong with you? And I said, okay, best job in the world. Got it. Okay. So, and it is, it's the best job in the world. And when I uh, had the opportunity to bring my daughter into the operating room, she was 12 years old and we, I brought her on a Saturday and this was sort of before all the HIPAA stuff and everything. And so she um, got to watch me operate on Saturday. It was a Saturday. So typically we had three appendectomies, three laparoscopic appendectomies in a row then I rounded, and then at the end of the day, I said, wasn't that fabulous? Like, don't you want to be a pediatric surgeon? Because it's just so awesome. And uh, she said, That's boring. <laughs> I could have done that. That was totally boring. I know how to take an out appendix. And why do we even have appendixes anyway? And why do you spend so much time taking them out? It's totally boring. Just looks like a fancy video game. I'm not interested. <laughs> So I was like, okay. So I was just disappointed that she didn't see the depth of, you know, what we did in our profession. But then she asked me about a week later, she said, mom, how many operations do you do that actually save lives? How many times do you go to the operating room and if you weren't there, the child would die? And I thought about it for a minute and I said to myself, and I smiled and I said, every single time. All those G-tubes, all those central lines, whether you're Darwinian about the G-tubes or not, it's the bane of our existence, it saves lives. The Broviacs, the Appies, the INDs of the buttocks abscesses, we are constantly, in every single thing we do, saving lives. And as our title says in APSA, we're not just saving lives, we're saving lifetimes. And lifetimes means generations. These adult surgeons, they spent all this effort doing all these operations, and they save one of me, they save one of us. I've already had my children, I've had my life, you saved one of me, you've saved one of me. You save a child, you save generations. You, that child goes on to have children, they have children, they have children's children. You've saved millions of lives in that one G-tube, in that one Appy, in that one abscess that you've IND'd. is the most incredible profession in the world. And now as we talk about whether you would advise your son or daughter, again, it's not necessarily your son or daughter, but we're looking into 20 years from now. So 20 years from now, how is pediatric surgery going to look? And the people we're talking about training are these millennials and these Gen Zs, right? So these are the guys that need immediate gratification. They have grown up in immediate gratification completely unlike we did or unlike our fathers and grandfathers did. I remember actually going to the library driving to the library, learning the Dewey Decimal System, finding a book, reading it, and finding out an answer. Now all they do is go, Siri, how far is it from here to New York City? And it's just they have so much immediate gratification they have access to. This is the generation that we really want to do pediatric surgery. Because in pediatric surgery, there is some incredible cases that provide that immediate gratification, that ability to leave the operating room and just feel absolutely fantastic about what you've just done. One of those cases, as much as I don't like it because it happens in the middle of the night, is ECMO. And VA ECMO is one of those cases. Um, that that does that for you. You take a baby who's blue, the Sats are 30 percent. You put in the cannulas, 100 percent Sat. Baby pinks up, and it's just it's fabulous. It's immediate gratification, and these millennials are really going to love that immediate gratification that comes with <clears throat> taking care of children in pediatric surgery. You can't get that anywhere else. I don't care what you say, you can't get that anywhere else. You save someone's life, you see it happen. You take out a big Wilms tumor. You, you you fix a pyloric stenosis. That is immediate gratification. as just what this generation is going to be good at, and that's just what they're going to enjoy. Thank you. All
3: right. So my partner, Dr. Byrne White, has addressed some of the concerns about case demand and training, and and the and the hurdles that we face. And, and Dr. Hayes Jordan put the warm and fuzzy out there and how immediate <laughs> gratification is going to be something that changes the world. And I'm sure Dr. Barnhart's got something quite just as ineffective. But, <laughs> <laughs> talk about a few things that are hit, hit home to each and one of us every day. Lifestyle. As pediatric surgeons, we take call. And it's not superficial call. It's real life call. We, we live our lives in the hospital. In fact, one-third of our cases come from being on call. So we don't have the insulation of being not engaged in call. We, we have to be there. In fact, if you work in a hospital system that has a trauma center, you're not only on call, you're on call in the hospital, right? Because more and more pediatric surgeons are now the surgical attending in the hospital. But if you're not in the hospital, you're still required to take call. And that call is real because there's the PD catheter that has to be put in because the nephrologist says it needs to go in even though he's not actually seen the patient. And then there's the 650-gram preemie who somehow miraculously got strong enough to pull out their line in the middle of the night that has to go back in, or the trauma activation, or the ECMO. So call is real. And we work really, really hard for that call. And I'm not entirely sure with work hour restrictions and call hour restrictions, day restrictions, we're actually training my child anyway to be prepared to do that. We don't even have our fellows taking in-house call at times now. Well, one of the good things about that is we've generally gotten rewarded financially for that, right? Because that was one of the things that we got as being pediatric surgeons. And I would anticipate that anybody in this room or anybody that's not in this room that wants to be a pediatric surgeon is going to have an expectation that there's going to be a financial reward that comes along with being pediatric surgery. Although I don't know that I can stand up here on this stage and look you all in the eye and say that the financial state of pediatric surgery is that secure of what that will look like in 2029, I think Kathy said. Did you guys know that 93% of all pediatricians in the United States are dependent on some sort of hospital support, whether that be through affiliation agreements, directorships or call contracts for ECMO, trauma, NICU call? And that hospital, by the way, is dependent on other sources of income, which we don't control. So hospital reimbursement is DRG-based, not professional fees, not what you and I get paid to do an operation, but hospitals are based on DRGs. DRGs are based on Medicare. Medicare is not really attached to Medicaid, but we live in a Medicaid world. And if you look across the United States over the last 25 years, there's a trend that I would say is fairly concerning in children's hospital. And that's the unencumbered, almost unattainable to reverse trend of increased uninsured Medicaid patients in our country. If you live in Miami, Dr. Burnwhite's hometown, that number's gone from 30 to 70% over the last 25 years. CHLE is close to that. Most metropolitan, even rural areas, sit between 50 and 60%. Phoenix, where I'm at, when I got there four years ago, was around 45, it's now 54. It's 18% in the last four years. Where does policy get made for that? The government level, right? Medicare. Who sits in congressional seats? People that are worried about adult and elderly health care. Much more, not that they were not worried about newborn healthcare, but newborn healthcare is not, I would say, a priority for them. So if somebody's gonna go into pediatric surgery and they expect that the financial rewards are gonna be what we get today, I don't know that we can actually tell them that. I don't know what it will look like, but hospitals are gonna have to look at ways to reduce costs to cover the losses they're gonna get for cutbacks. And that's gonna have to come back to pediatric surgery. If we think that we're not gonna have to be part of that cost-cutting, that's irrational for us to think that way, to, be, to believe that we're special enough and we do warm and fuzzy things enough that we're going to be able to avoid that. So we talked about a few things today, but I did want to just end with one thing, is that I remember something as a sophomore in college in my economics class. I think you guys have heard of it. It's called supply and demand. I'd say that we have a supply and demand conundrum in pediatric surgery in that we believe there's demand for pediatric surgeons, so we're supplying them right? But maybe we've got something a little bit worrisome that I would call a demand and supply crisis, because we have a demand in this country to provide highly trained, incredibly competent pediatric surgeons, and that I'm not sure we can actually supply it, given our current environment in pediatric surgery over the next two decades. Thank you.
4: Good afternoon. Uh, I just wanted to start by reading the resolution again. Uh, Be it resolved that I would not encourage my daughter or son to become a pediatric surgeon. Because I think when I read that, this debate's easier to win than I thought. Because it seems like Kathy and Dan came to argue a different question. They came to argue, do we have problems in our specialty? Where the real question that we've got up there on the screen is... Do we have problems that are so great, so intimidating, so intractable that it fundamentally undermines the great things about our specialty? And I don't think that's the case. The resolution that's on that screen is fundamentally about what do we want for our children and other young people we care about. When I think about my kids and what I want for them and their job, I want them to have a vocation that's meaningful that when they reach the end of their career, they feel like they made a real contribution. Secondly, I want them to have an honest chance of success. Can they get trained? Can they get the job? And then I want them to be able to provide for themselves. They don't need to be the kid that's the richest that graduated from their class though. So if you share aspirations for your kids similar to what I have, I think the debate's over, reflecting on my career. Case closed. But I've got five minutes, and I'm not going to concede the time back to them. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I think as we think about these problems, I would like us to put down some basic principles of how we're going to approach the problems. The first is the patients come first, our trainees come second, and our desires come third. Secondly, let's agree that transparency is a good thing, and that we'll we'll do research, we'll get data, we'll share it, and then we'll agree to make decisions based on it. And thirdly, let's agree that we can be flexible. We're a small specialty, and we can fix ourselves. So with, with those guide rules in mind, let's talk a little bit about some of the training problems to start out with. There's no doubt our training is long. It's nine years for most people, and other people, it's much longer. And that may be too long for some people. There's no doubt about it. We have a lot lot of learning that we try to get into our trainees, both technically and cognitively, and maybe we can do better. What are some solutions? Well, first, we could actually be more efficient with our didactic teaching. In this era, there's no reason that there can't be a national curriculum where every fellow in the country participates in one or two lectures a week that's done nationally, taught by national experts. There's no reason our fellows can't get a a weekly diet that's like the colorectal symposium that we started this meeting with. Secondly, could we use competency-based training like they're experimenting with at Michigan? Would it make them their clinical judgment mature more quickly. Maybe it will, maybe it won't, but we should experiment with it. In terms of training duration, the one thing I agree with them about is we need to move the career development years to the end of the career training. Research years, super specialty fellowships should come after your general pediatric surgeon. The reason for that is so that we don't have these people that have invested a significant amount of time to try to get a fellowship that they'll never achieve that is a change we need to make that's a change I'd want for my son or my daughter next we've we've had the same duration of training since we began as a subspecialty and we ought to look at whether we ought to come up with a different model for that a lot has changed in that time and we need to think about whether this is really still the right model And we have options. There are options that exist right now in the RRC, in the American Board of Surgery, that we can use. One option is early specialization. In early specialization, you identify a junior resident that's interested in pediatric surgery, and from that point on, you begin to modify their training so that it meets both their general surgery requirements and their pediatric surgery requirements. It allows you to eliminate the parts that are less useful and emphasize the parts that are most useful. There are actually specialties that have begun to do integrated surgery training, where you take medical students and put them right into the beginnings of the training of a subspecialty so that all of the training can be focused on that. That would be a big, big change for us. But we should consider these things. And these are things that the pediatric surgery board is thinking about. There needs to be a real discussion around how much operative experience fellows need to have to be qualified. And that's begun. This year's class of fellows is the first group that will have to submit a case requirement, a a case log that has requirements by area and by complexity to allow them to sit for the pediatric surgery boards. My initial time is up. So the take-home message is the answer that we've already answered the question, case closed, have your sons and daughters go into pediatric surgery. But I'll look forward to the next hour to talk about how we solve these problems. Thanks. (laughs)
0: Okay, now we'll uh, have a rebuttal from one of you. We're
3: doing the questions first. Okay. So, he tried, didn't he? Gave it a good run. Uh, (laughs) Good job there, Dougie. (laughs) So, before I go into things, maybe I should just pose one thought or question. Maybe the reason that Kathy and I have, uh, well, that's not true. We didn't actually choose this side of the We were actually assigned this side. <laughs> that's all, yeah. But maybe it's a little hard to encourage our son or daughter to become a pediatric surgeon because you just heard everything on both pros and cons. But for me personally, I'm not sure I believe that the specialty I love and enjoy today is gonna be the same specialty that my son or daughter sees me be today is what they will be in 20 years because I don't know that we'll ever be able to stay that way. And evolving is always a good thing, but it's also a random event. So let's just talk a little bit about these things that Doug and, and Andrea thought would be so fixable. So uh, I've been at this about 20 years. I can tell you that in 20 years, we've heard concerns about uh, fellowship uh, numbers growing. We've heard at the program director's meeting how we need to change it. We've heard from the RRC and the American Board of Surgery how they recognize that there may be a crisis coming. But yet, in that 20 years, there's really nothing that's ever been done. There's more pediatric surgery training programs today. I'm at fault. I'm a program director. I just started two years ago. I'm proud to have trained the fellows I trained. Having said that, I'm also the person up here stating that that maybe isn't the best thing. So the dilemma that's facing us in the next two decades, I don't believe can be fixed in a meaningful fashion that's gonna allow this specialty to be what it is today. If you look at the accrediting bodies, we just talked about them for a real quick minute and a half here. So we have the RRC that sits over here, and I know Doug has commented that we are now instituting case, case metrics into the American Board of Surgery. We could talk about that in a second. The RRC sits here. What does the RRC do? The RRC approves programs. They don't have anything to do with accrediting fellows. In fact, I would say their level of interest in terms of the health of pediatric surgery would be somewhere between none and 5%. They are an algorithmic machine that says these are the criteria. If you meet those criteria, you can have a program. Simple as that. Then over here, you have the American Board of Surgery. American Board of Surgery, their entire goal in life is to certify individuals. Is this person a safe surgeon? Doesn't make a difference where they trained. doesn't make a difference what their training was, doesn't make a difference how their training was set up. All they do is say, they're a safe surgeon or not? How is it possible that these two bodies that have so much to do with us as a profession can't talk to each other and figure out the crisis that we're facing today and what we're gonna face over the next 30 years as my partner Kathy said, with the growth of 45%. How is it possible that these two people are, these two organizations are being allowed to drive our specialty forward? And we as pediatric surgeons and more specifically pediatric surgery program directors are not stepping in more aggressively. And I am one of those people. So I take fault in it. But I don't see how that's fixable in the way that everybody in this room sees their profession and everybody in this room answers this question, which Doug so prophetically reminded you of three times, <laughs> that we fix it so that they become a pediatric surgeon in the form that we all enjoy today, which I love, by the way. So back to you guys.
2: <laughs> so I'm going to talk about my three-minute rebuttal. I'm going to talk about the points of lifestyle and that there's too many of us. Um, and the last bastion of general surgery. So lifestyle, yes, we we have a lot of call and some of us have more call than others. But when you look at things like burnout, which is a hot topic these days, there's a study from the American Physicians and it was published in 2019. And they surveyed 19,000 physicians and between 44% and 58% of physicians, depending on specialty, had experienced burnout. And surprisingly, about 15% of them had either thought about or knew somebody else that, that wanted to commit suicide. Now, if you then look at the subset of surgeons, when they looked at the number of surgeons, they looked at 39,000 surgeons. In another article that was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, of 39,000 surgeons, <coughs> surgeons subspecialty with the highest burnout rate, I don't know if you guessed this, the highest burnout rate is trauma surgeons. I would have guessed that because of what trauma surgeons do. I can see they have the highest burnout rate. The lowest burnout rate, pediatric surgeons. No matter what our lifestyle is, we have managed to either get the positive energy from the warm fuzzies. (laughs) To balance our life so that even if our call schedule and our lifestyle doesn't appear to be as nice as the general surgeons that are on call every one in 22 nights or the trauma surgeons that get 24 hours off on and 24 hours off, they're having a higher burnout rate. So whatever our lifestyle is, what we do on a day-to-day basis gives us the best job satisfaction as evidenced by the fact that we have the lowest burnout rate of all physicians, of all surgeons. Too many of us. Nah, not too many of us. If you look at the statistics for the United States, they say there's 18 pediatric surgeons per 1 million children. Not 1 million people, but 1 million children. That's all of the United States. But if you look in states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, any rural area that you pick, sometimes you've got one pediatric surgeon for 5 million people. So we don't have, there's not too many of us. There's just not enough of us in the areas where we need to be, and that's where we need to define our profession. But I would still 100% encourage my son or daughter, someone who be practicing in 20 years, because we are going to need people in those rural areas to practice pediatric surgery at a high level. We don't want people there that are just doing appies and pylorics. We want people there that can provide a high level of pediatric surgery in those areas. So it's not too many of us. We're very, very far from that. If you look at specific rural areas. And um, per the comments today, as well as yesterday, about us being the last bastion of general surgery, forget about it, okay? We, we're not going to be able to do heart surgery. What did Dr. Raffensberger say? Heart surgery, <laughs> bone surgery, appies, and a gunshot wound in the same day. <clears throat> it's just not going to happen. We have surgical subspecialists now. We have cardiac surgeons who do what they do. We have pediatric urologists who do what they do. And we just aren't going to be able to go backwards. Plus, our patients come to us and what do they ask you? How many tracheoesophageal fistula repairs have you done? How many would I fill in the blank? They go online and look up somebody who they think is the expert in whatever it is. We cannot go back to the days of doing everything for everybody. It's not going to be that way in 20 years. It's still going to be an awesome thing to practice. But there's no way we're going to be able to go back to operating on the whole body well and then the need the number of pediatric surgeons that we do. So it's still the best profession. The lifestyle... Doesn't, it lends itself to us not being burned out, so we still have the greatest profession in the world.
0: <laughs> so we now have a few minutes to have a little bit more free-form discussion, um, and the first question I, I want to ask is it relates to the increasing number of women in pediatric surgery, and I think we're probably up to at least 50% now of, of our trainees. And so that's changed the, um, the way our profession looks. And um, at the risk of being politically incorrect, I would say that men and women are not the same. They should be equal, but they are not the same, both in, in the way they approach things and in the demands of motherhood, for example, and, and those sorts of things. So can I ask, uh, what are your thoughts about the effect on the future of our profession and on its desirability for our children? What's the effect of having more women as part of our specialty?
1: I've always taken the view that to have a mother that has a socially responsible, important job and have your child see that mother do that job is worth, is worth so much. I, I used to go to the playground in my gym shorts and T-shirt, and I'd see all these mothers in their their capris and their hair done, and I used to feel kind of bad, like oh my gosh, you know. But then I I, I see that my children look at this example of a woman that is working, and the socially responsible job that she has, and they also know that they get they have they're they're in an socially a socioeconomic group that allows them to do a lot of travel and things in school. And, and I think that we women are great examples. Yes, there are downsides to being a working mother. No one's ever going to argue <laughs> against that. <laughs> but I think that what we bring to the table and show our children is really way, way, way outbalances those downsides. Yeah.
0: So you're actually arguing that that you
1: would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Whose team are you on? Can I jump
4: on the bandwagon of why it's going to be a better specialty and why our, no, why our mean, son or daughter should to go into it? I don't think it to do so much
1: it. with pediatric surgery as it has to do with the number of women in the workforce, yeah. in
2: the surgical workforce. Yeah, I, think, I think as a woman, whether you have children or not, what is the saying, the courage of a lion, the hands of a woman? I'm missing one. That the same, I know somebody in the audience knows the other third part of it. To be a pediatric surgeon, you have to have the courage of a lion in the, in the hands of a woman. So I think women in general in the operating room we may or may not have more delicate hands, but just having that perspective of a woman, even if you don't have any children, and being in pediatric surgery is a really important perspective to have um, I think we we bring a lot of sensitivity. I think even the there's there's no really such thing as this whole work life balance thing for men or women. I think that's that's sort of a misnomer. But um, as Kathy was saying, you can if you can inspire your uh, your girls. You know, my daughter, even though she's 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 not going to be a pediatric surgeon, she's clearly an athlete. But she um, she really respects the fact that I have a job in which I take care of children and I help save children's lives, and I think giving younger girls that perspective that that they can they can they can do things as impactful as that.
4: If I could bring us back to try to get that other twenty one percent, I think, uh, and I appreciate you giving us a lob to go to our side. Right, if the one thing we gained from the presidential symposium yesterday and the workshop today is the diversity makes us better. So if that's happening, another argument for my kid to go into pediatric surgery, you're going to be in a more diverse workforce and it's going to be a better specialty to be in than it is right now.
3: I got nothing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, But let's just talk about a little bit about the about the workload. All right. It's inhumane to have medical students up all night anymore, right? I mean, you can't have a medical student do 24 hours and stay overnight in the hospital and then work the next day. But we are going to be doing that much of our career. And that's a real downside. I mean, our families and our children are important. And there are other specialties that don't sup- suck your youth away from you. Uh, <laughs> the one thing about the two years of research is it lets you have a baby. Uh, you know. Uh, but you, you don't have to do that nine years, and now we're thinking 10 years of training, and you get to be 40 years, and you look around, and you say, holy crap, where did it go? I can't have a baby. I'm 40 years old. Anyway, so I think there are other specialties that have been much more sensitive to this length of training.
0: Many people have commented that the problems we face in our specialty are insurmountable, and one of the problems we have is that the, our organizations that represent us, like APSA, have been ineffective so far in changing the, the specialty to make it more, um, more of a specialty we would want our child to go into. Does anybody want to comment on, on how there may, we can change APSA and the other organizations we belong to to be more effective on our behalf?
3: So I'll start now, since I was the one that put the tirade up here. Um, so I think the the biggest concern I see in our organizations, whether it be apps, AAP, not, not so much AP, but, but we'll include AP, program directors, is that it's it's a sense of, a we're afraid to make a hard decision because we're gonna either bruise somebody's ego or we're gonna be perceived as trade restraint instead of looking at what is the right thing for the profession. And we're not the first profession to have gone through this, we, whether it be training paradigms or cases or types of operations that let, get slipped, let slip away because the organization didn't focus on that. You look at cardiac surgery, when, <clears throat> when stents came into place and, and angioplasties came into place, You know they didn't see that coming, whereas the vascular surgeons saw it, and they jumped on it, and they saved their profession by becoming the endovascular surgeons, and cardiac surgery now, I could personally probably get a cardiac surgery program in July if I wanted it by just calling around the country. And so I do think that if we don't start to make hard decisions now as organizations, APSA, the Program Directors Association, then we are going to be at risk for having our specialty not be what it has the potential to continue to be over the next two decades and be relegated to something that we didn't control but just responded to after the fact.
1: Yeah, Doug, I I want fewer training programs, so I, want, I think your training program should be the one that drops out. I
4: think that's great. Let's, let, let's, let's talk training programs. Uh, no, I, I, when we talk about workforce, and there was, there was a period of time where Kevin Lally was like an Old Testament prophet going around yeah. talking about doom, and I think they asked him why he stopped, and he basically was afraid nobody would talk to him at the cocktail parties anymore, so he, so he gave <laughs> up. So maybe it's, maybe it's time for somebody else to take it up, right? And, I, and when we went through that, my conclusion was, be prepared to live on a hot planet with too many pediatric surgeons. <laughs> and, um, and I was pretty hopeless about how that was going to get fixed until I watched what was happening in the political environment. And this is the invitation to everybody that's not a program director. What you saw is people started asking other people hard questions about why they make individual decisions. You're right. There's no regulatory body that can change the number of residencies. There is, in the number of residents, there is a small contingent of people that can, though. They're the program directors. Right. Right? So that's why I laid those principles out in the beginning. Let's go patients first, residents second, us third. There's a lot of reasons why people have two fellows. There's a lot of reasons people have three fellows. There aren't many of them that are patient or resident-driven. And there's a lot of them that are us-driven. There's a lot of you that take trauma call without a fellow. There's a lot of you that take care of patients without a fellow. You take call. You do all these things. You, you, You do academic work without a fellow. What I would encourage, I think the solution is to give everybody in this audience freedom to look on the website of the program directors and the ones you know, ask them, why do you have two pediatric surgery fellows? Given what we talk about and we all talk about it, why do you have two? (laughs) That's
1: a great (laughs) question. Why do I have two?
4: Yeah, why does anyone have two? I have no
1: senior residents. I have interns in second years.
4: Are there people in the audience that have no senior residents? I mean, again, I think, I think it's, it, we all, it's, it's our internal thing. It's, a, it's the question, of, and I don't mean to pick on you, but it's the question, do we do what's good for the common good or for us individually? And I, I think each of us that have a fellowship need to, need to reflect on that. I
1: think more of the problem than the number of programs, although that just the extended training program is just onerous, um, because I drop out a fellow or you drop out a fellow it's not going to make that TEF go from right. Salt Lake City to Washington. That TEF is going to be lost. The bigger problem is that we as pediatric surgeons have fewer cases to stay good at. And when you people are out in your communities, if you do one TEF every two or three years, that is not enough to stay expert. Right. That's the bigger problem in no,
4: training. Yeah, so let I, I agree. So let's talk about the issue. I think there are two issues, training and that's maintenance of like competency.
2: That's sub- why it's so specialized. That's why the people are doing foregut surgery, because you can't just be good at just doing right. one. That's why you're doing foregut surgery or gut surgery.
4: But but ju- just in point of fact, in terms of resonant case volumes, that has not changed as the addition of fellowships. And this, this is data that's available through the RRC that we've looked at. There's significant variation between programs with high volume and low volume programs. The distribution of those types of programs has not changed as we've added on programs. (coughs) So that's that's an old problem that there may be some that are low. I agree with you. The question of how do we maintain competency as we get more and more, and as Andrea said, part of that solution probably is this subspecialization. There's probably it does make sense that every pediatric surgeon will do a Wilms tumor. But not every pediatric surgeon probably should do an abdominal neuroblastoma with vascular encasement. You do a standard esophageal atresia. You don't do a long-gap esophageal atresia. I think, and I think that's honest that's being honest about what our outcomes are and what would be best for our patients.
2: The other thing about the training is, you know, it used to be when in, in places where there was not a pediatric surgery fellowship program, which used to be the majority of general surgery training programs, you did not have a pediatric surgery fellowship. You were training general surgeons to do some pediatric surgery. Now, all of our residents are going into, most, 80% of the residents are going into subspecialties. They're begging people to be general surgeons. They're being colorectal surgeons, trauma surgeons, bariatric surgeons. So I find myself spending a lot of time in the groups, in my group and other groups, where you don't have a fellowship Doing these cases with residents who are going into colorectal and bariatric surgery—never going to do a TEF, never going to do a diaphragmatic, never going to do a pyloric, never going to do a hernia. So, so why should we sort of? The other perspective is why should we sort of "quote unquote" waste that training on a general surgery resident who's not going to become a general surgeon, and is and and <clears throat> perhaps that training should be spent on someone who's going to be a pediatric surgeon. That's so the other. Are, perspective. are you going to send
0: all your index cases to a training program?
2: <laughs> yeah, our country is not ready for any kind of centralized anything. I mean, this 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 country uh, has a lot of issues, but it um, you know, having trained in, in Canada, where I saw that it was really no harm in letting a inguinal hernia, for example, be repaired when they're two years old, even you know, you diagnose it as a newborn, and going through a clinic where you'd say, "Miss So and So, see in eighteen months, we'll fix your kid's hernia." And everybody said, "Thank you very much, doctor. See in eighteen months." United States, I say that they're just going to go to Doug or somewhere. Who else? Whoever's going to fix it tomorrow is where they're going to go.
1: Well, the liability—we're limited
2: by our culture and The way.
1: liability issue is one that really yeah, yeah. is. We have not talked culture, about that, right. but when you have a bad outcome in a child, and when you have a bad outcome in an 85-year-old or a 65-year-old, I mean, it's sad and it takes it out of you. But when you have a child that has a really bad outcome, and you. Get sued, or you even if you don't get sued, you see a video of that five-year-old at the playground last week. It it is something that is emotionally draining. That in my personal life, I have never gotten over those cases, and that is something that really it's I think um, unique to pediatric surgery. Not not the not the kind of shame and the fear that that previous speaker talked about, but the idea that you truncated a life or wasted a lifetime, it's, uh, that's, that's a real downer and, and it's a tough thing. The OBs, I think, also deal with that kind of stress in their um, line of work. And, and that's, that's something that really argues against what we do.
0: Let me just ask one other question, which we haven't touched upon, but which I think some people would feel is a, is a big draw towards pediatric surgery, and that is the huge number of unanswered questions, the huge number of research opportunities in pediatric surgery, which I would argue is probably much higher than in many other specialties. Uh, can you guys might,
3: comment on might that? might even add to that the, the academics, and this is... Probably not good because it may go across as I'm actually helping the two defendants over. There. Yeah, I'm not going <laughs> to rebut
4: you, Dan. Go, go it.
3: Um, but the, if you look at pediatric surgery as a specialty, the academic success of a of a true of a true academic surgeon is related in, in per capita, let's say, as compared to other surgical specialties, is very very high, right? But having said that, I don't think we need 45% more pediatric surgeons to continue that academic success. In fact, you might argue that it would be the opposite. But the inquisitiveness, the the research milieu petri dish that is pediatric surgery that leads to academic and research stimulation success is is something that's truly unique to this specialty. I agree.
1: That's all the more reason for stopping that two years of research and putting it at the end. No, it's it, just
2: the opposite. <laughs> just the opposite. So we need that two years of research to get people excited about research, to find to sort Swap of separate. Swap chairs with separate. <laughs> <laughs> I want to argue with her. <laughs> to, separate, uh, to separate so people can identify for themselves whether they have that passion or not. Some people do, some people don't. We don't need 100% of pediatric surgeons doing, doing research, but we do need the people who have a passion for doing it. And we have so many unanswered questions. We still don 't know how to anticipate any C or prevent any C We still don 't know how to get prevent a baby from developing an esophageal atresia. We still don 't know how to predict biliary atresia and, and keep ourse- keep that child out of the operating room There are so many questions and if we take away those two years of research then we 're never we 're never going to get any of these questions answered We have to, We have to train ourselves in a way that we can help identify those folks who have the passion. And the drive to answer those questions.
0: Okay. So uh, we now head into the last part of the debate, where each of the debaters will have two minutes for a final statement. And I think we'll start with you guys this time. in oh, okay.
3: reverse order. Do you want to go first. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, it's only fair. It's only fair. I, <laughs> I,
4: I, I think it's only fair to say that they probably, honestly, would have picked our position if they. If they had. <laughs> Um, because I'm going to make a warm argument at the end. I'll argue that it's not fuzzy, um, but it is. I think that history informs the future, and I think this meeting has really emphasized our history. To remind all the bad things were going on in pediatric surgery when I was a child, and why my parents and Dr. Haller should have discouraged me from going into pediatric surgery. The local general surgeons opposed you being a pediatric surgeon. You were the only pediatric surgeon in the city, so you took call every night. You'd failed twice to get a pediatric surgery board. Medicaid had just been passed. Funding's uncertain because of the war in Vietnam. And the idea of Children's Health Insurance Program is 20 years in the future. (coughs) So it probably would have been quite rational for them to discourage us from being pediatric surgeons, and I'm quite glad that, quite glad that they didn't. Um, and for sure, we, we've got challenges in our specialty. And I, the one thing I agree with Dan about is we need, we need to make some hard decisions, and we need to make them as a specialty, and the group needs to do that. And there, and there, there, will, be, there will be hard decisions. There may be tough days. And um, in my desk at home, I've got, got my folder that's In case of a bad day folder, and Mark wouldn't know this because he's he's been in my office. Um, And I I suspect that every pediatric surgeon in the audience knows what you keep in that folder. And it's not your fidelity account balances, right? (laughs) (laughs) What's in that folder is photos of kids and letters from parents. It's pictures of girls in prom dresses that had Wilms tumors. It's trauma patients that are pitching high school baseball games. It's babies that had CDHs that are now graduating from high school. And, and the most precious letters in there are the letters from parents where the kids never got out of the NICU. And I'm sure that we've, we've got challenges that we've got to fix. But we do have the structures in place. One thing we didn't talk about is the pediatric surgery board, the ACGME, and the program directors are now in a phase where we meet on a regular basis to try, to try to work through these issues. So we've got the structures in place to deal with these things. It's our turn to lean in and fix these problems. We can do it. We need to do it because when my kids are 50, I want them to have a folder like that. Thank you.
3: Well, there was warm and fuzzy, and then there was Doug. (laughs) Uh, How do you follow up a folder? (laughs) So um, for every great debate, there's a question, right? And most great debates have great questions to them. So I'm going to steal a page from Doug and have everybody look at this comment. It says, be it resolved that I would not encourage my child or daughter daughter or son to become a pediatric surgeon. So when I look at this debate, that means if my son is telling me I'm gonna go into international economics, I'm not gonna go out there and tell him you should become a pediatric surgeon. But if my son comes to me and says, or my daughter comes to me and says, I wanna be a pediatric surgeon, that does not mean that I have any intention not to support them down that pathway. But you can be darn sure that they're gonna know every single thing that I shared with you today to make sure that the decision they make is gonna be the right decision. Because if they don't have that toolkit in front of them, then it's on me as a father. It's on all the program directors out there. It's on all the mentors out there that you failed that person in preparing them for what they thought they were getting into. And it's not what you're going to see today. So when you get your little clicker it's going to come up here in a minute and it's going to ask you that same question... Every debate has a great question. You have to dissect the, the great debaters, win the debates by answering the question the way the audience expects it to be answered. <laughs> so you read that question, it says, Encourage my son or daughter to become a pediatric surgeon. It does not say, I would not support my son or daughter to become a pediatric surgeon. So. Thank you. Very loyal. I'll win by any measure, by the way. <laughs>
2: 20 years from now, 30 years from now, who knows what we're going to have in pediatric surgery. We may have holograms. We may not even have to go to clinic. We may be able to do clinic from our homes. We may be rid of Epic, thank God. We may, be, uh, we may have the, all the things that we hate about pediatric surgery are probably going to be gone. But the thing that we love, Being in the operating room, repairing something so the child can eat, drink, poop, swallow normally is never going to go away. It's always going to be extraordinarily satisfying, and there's never going to be anything to replace it. I think it's only going to get better. I think it's only going to get better. I think the fact that we're going to have more pediatric surgeons is going to allow us the luxury to focus on what we enjoy. And having that luxury will allow us to answer questions that come to our mind, the more operations you do for some things, the, the, the easier the questions come, and these will allow us to move our field forward. If we just have pediatric surgeons doing one TEF a year and one biliary atresia a year, that's not going to help us move forward. We need to be focused, we need more pediatric surgeons, and we need to continue to be excited about the best profession in the world.
1: Okay. So let's sum this up. (laughs) There are too many of us for all of us to do those great cases that got us into the profession with enough frequency to be really good at them. Number two, our specialty is largely emergency and urgent care driven. That means we're going to be up all night. We're going to have little control over our schedules we, the workload is great, the lifestyle is not. With the increasing Medicaid and self-pay population, in my, in my practice that means no pay population, because of the high supply, low demand because of the increasing specialists honing in on our scope of practice and because of the belt tightening of all the healthcare organizations, I'm going to have a hard time recommending nine years of training when reimbursements, not reimbursements, when economic stability is not what it has been in the past. And they tell us that there are a whole bunch of jobs out there. But those jobs are in more rural areas where we're going to do appendix, gallbladders, hernias, central lines, lumps and bumps, INDs. And that does not require nine years of every other night or every third night call and the foregoing of your youth. And then when a child goes bad, there is that incredible emotional toll That's going to stay with you. It's going to stay with you, whether or not there's malpractice or not. So can I encourage my child to embrace this nine-year training program when the scope of practice is being diminished? I don't think so. Can I encourage my child to embrace this nine years of training When there's fewer health care dollars for children, because children don't vote, when there's really no solution to the uninsured and the underinsured, when there's no arbitration board that can decrease the number of pediatric surgeons and decrease the number of specialists. I can't. And so pediatric surgery, as I have known and loved it for the past 40 years, is probably gone for good. Rest in peace. (laughs)
0: Until next time, dominate the day.